My name is Nathan. It's my privilege to pastor this church, one of the great joys of my life, to do that. Uh, and we're going to talk this morning, hopefully very practically, about the process of making disciples. We use that language a lot here at Restoration Church. And I wrote up something a few years back that I called the Restoration Church Disciple-Making Plan. I heard David Platt say that they give every new member a disciple-making plan, and I thought to myself, that's a great idea. And so uh, I looked, at, well, I don't need to go there. So I wanted to make it really simple. I wanted to make it really simple uh, because I think oftentimes this whole plan of making disciples is so complex. Some of you all heard me tell the story of we, uh, we received some books in the mail about how to go about making disciples. And it was like five books and you opened them up and there was all these questions. And oh, it's just so, I, like I had difficulty navigating the whole thing. And it's just not that hard. Now the pro, like, discipling people is hard, but like knowing what to do is not that hard. And so I want to make it as simple as I can. So I hope this sermon will be very instructive for you. It's going to be a little bit different than the way we normally preach here at Restoration Church. And so that disciple making plan, I printed off. Uh, it's a four, it's it's uh, about four pages disciple making plan. It's here. Uh, there's about five of them here. I also have a book called Discipling. We brought three copies of these. If you want, if we, if they go quickly and you want one, we have more. This is basically a one and one and a half hour version. Uh, we have three copies of those. Go and pick them up. First come, first serve. Uh, but, um, let me pray for us and then we're going to kind of frame this discussion and then try to help you. I hope to help you to in the process of making disciples. Let's pray and ask God for help. God, we thank you that you love. We praise you, God, that you are a God that loves. And we praise you, God, that you love to the point of giving your son. We praise you, son, that you love to the point of loving us, that we might be made disciples. And thank you, God, for the throngs of people that loved us enough to tell us the gospel so that we could so love you and then love others. And so, God, help us to understand how we might continue this great story by loving others in the process of making disciples that delight in the supremacy of your Son. We pray in his name. Amen. So I want to set the context of this disciple-making plan by asking a question, what's behind discipling? Like, why do we make disciples? Why do we do this? You know, we can talk so much about this. I'm sure you've heard sermons. I know I have. But we talk so much about discipling, and nobody ever really tells us why. Just, well, Jesus told us to. That's true. But... I want to know something behind that to give me fuel to go out into the field. And so I want to start by framing this question by asking this question. Namely, what has God been doing from eternity? What's he been up to before the world existed? What was God doing? What's he doing now? What will he be doing in the future? What is God up to? What has he always done? Here's my answer. He's been loving. He's always been loving. That's why he can be said to be love. God is love. He's been loving, namely, the eternal fellowship of himself. The eternal fellowship of himself. The father so loved the son that he gave life, giving love to that son. And that son was so excited by that life, giving love, that he was excited by that. And what did he do? He returned that love back to the father. And then back and forth at one. And the Spirit of God, the person, the Spirit is a person, the spirit, person of the, of the Spirit 
carried that love back and forth to the Son. And so in that way, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have been just exciting life inside of one another by loving each other from eternity. That's what he's been doing. And so, guys, that's what marriage, for instance, is made to illustrate. The the husband is to represent the Jesus role that excited life in the wife. And so the wife then in the church responds back in love back to him. And if the Lord wills, life comes. Right? You saw the children go out the rear. That's what happened. That's the fruit of love. And so that's what uh, God has been doing. He's been loving to the point of giving life to the world. And so when we think about it that way, that's what creation is. That's why creation came to be. God did not need creation. God was perfectly self-sustaining in and of himself. And so what happened was the reason why creation existed is because God so loved himself in the eternal fellowship of himself Creation came into existence because life just kept spilling over and over and over and out it came. Not because God needed creation, but because he so loved. And so at the heart of that creation, of course, is human beings, mankind. We are created in the image of God. Therefore, we should be imaging God. We have the ability as human beings to know God. And because we can know him, therefore, we should display him to the world. Show what he's like. Show his love, bring about life in the world, have dominion over the world in love, just as he has love. And so that's what happened. That's the task of humanity to fill the world up. Genesis 1:28, that great commission verse. Genesis 1:28, fill the world up with worshipers, fill them up with people that will, as it were, make disciples that will train the whole world up in the love of God. And so when we think about love being life giving, it would then make sense why at the fall death came. It makes sense because love by its very nature is other oriented. It's not primarily interested in itself. It's other oriented. That's the nature of the Trinity and we're created in his image. And so if love begins to be most interested in self, love breaks. And when love breaks, life breaks and death comes. And that's what happened. When love stops loving, namely when love stops being so interested in bringing life to others, therefore then love breaks and death comes. That's what happened in the fall. But again, God is so oriented to love, he couldn't give up on creation. He just was so compelled to continue to love creation, to see life come, that he so loved it that he gave his only son. He promised that in Genesis 3.15, right after the fall would come, that he was going to send his son, that life would come again through love, by that son so loving the earth. And that promise, that was a promise, this son would come through that promise. It was promised to come through Adam. The first man through Seth, the son of the promise, eventually to a guy named Abraham, on to a guy named Isaac, to another guy that he had, Isaac's son, Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. Those 12 sons became the nation of Israel. And God had so loved the nation of Israel that he had them to be set apart to display God's love to the world. But they failed. They failed in loving. They failed in displaying the greatness of the love of God. And so therefore, they were broken. They were destroyed. But out of them came that son. Son of David. David was a king over Israel. He was the son of David. He was the son of Abraham. He was the son of Abram. And his name was Jesus, meaning Savior. Savior from what? Savior from death. Therefore, that should indicate to us that he's going to love a lot. Love so much that he'd bring life to the world. And that's what he did. He loved so much. You see it in his life. You read it in the Gospels. We're going to look at a few passages today. He so loved the world that he laid his life down. He laid his life down. He 
was perfect. He was sinless. He loved everyone, even when he gave hard words and gentle words. He loved, and then he loved most notably on the cross, where he lays his life down for sin-sick people like me and you. And he loved so much that he laid his life down to make an atoning sacrifice for sin, for sickness, for not loving that his love then overcame that sin through the resurrection. On the third day, life came because love came. Life came through that resurrection. And at the end of that resurrection, towards the end before Jesus ascends to be with Father, he tells his disciples that he'd been making. We'll talk a lot about them in a moment. He says to them, last words, whatever the last words are, pretty important. Go and what? Make disciples. It's his last word. Go make disciples. Go discipleship. Here's the definition. What is discipleship? Helping people follow Jesus. Pretty easy. Process not easy. Definition easy. All right. Helping people follow Jesus. Go make disciples. He says, go make disciples and baptizing them, baptizing the disciples, baptizing the believers, baptizing the disciples in the Trinity, in that eternal loving fellowship in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And then here we come. This informs the process of discipleship. Teaching them to obey. Don't just give them knowledge. Teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And I will be with you to the end of the age. That's what God is up to in the world. He's so loving himself and so loving his people and so loving the world that he's trying to do the same thing that he wanted to do at the beginning. To fill the world up with people that love him and love their neighbor as themselves. And that, friends, is the mission of the church. That's the mission of this church. That should be the mission of every church of Christ. To make disciples that delight in the supremacy of God by having loving relationships. So loving that life comes. So we ought not just receive the love of God. If you're only receiving or you're primarily receiving and you're not giving, then you should know if God is giving life-giving love, you're disobeying the nature of the gospel. And if you're disobeying the nature of the gospel, that means you're disobeying the nature of God because God is primarily other-oriented to give and to bring life. So, if you claim to have new life in Christ, naturally you ought to be loving them and training them up in that love. And to not do that is to lie about the gospel and lie about God. So we see that exactly in 1 Corinthians 13, for instance. Where Paul says, if I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. He goes on to say, if I give away all that I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So the mission of the church is to make disciples that are trained to obey the life-giving love of Christ as he has made known to us in the word. This is what God is up to in the world. This is our task as a church. But the question that we have to ask this morning that I'm going to attempt to answer quickly and briefly, I hope, and hopefully simply, is how do we do this? How do we do this? How do we actually make disciples? I'm mindful that many of you have been discipled, you know, through preaching, through Sunday school or Titus 2 or something like that, uh, but you've not actually made disciples yourself. And the thought of making disciples, the thought of actually trying to go out and with one or two or three other people to try to help them follow Jesus seems really intimidating to you and, you and you don't really know what to do. Well, I hope to answer that question with four simple steps that we see in the life of Jesus. Those four simple steps, I even made them rhyme. All right? 
That's how much I love you. I even made them rhyme so that you'll memorize them. And remember, what do I, well, how do I go about making disciples? Well, here it is. Here's the disciple, Restoration Church disciple-making plan. You saturate, you uh, then initiate, you then imitate, and then you replicate. So you saturate, as we will see, in your love of God. We will then initiate loving relationships. We will then, thirdly, imitate the love of God out in front of them, teaching them to obey it. And then, fourthly, we replicate, we multiply those relationships, and on it goes. That's what we do. So let's start off again with this idea of saturate. How do we go about making disciples? First step, we saturate ourselves in the love of God. Namely, we, we saturate ourselves in the love of God in the word and in prayer. That's what we see Jesus doing. Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. Verse 1. Here's the temptation of Jesus. All right, right at the front end of his ministry, he's driven into the wilderness, just as Israel was driven into the wilderness. Let's see if Jesus is going to obey. Israel did not. Look at verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, I think by that we can indicate full of love, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, that's what the devil does, by the way. This was going to be my sermon. I told you I was going to preach this week. This was my whole sermon right here, so you're getting a little piece of it right here. That's what that's what the devil does. He sees a desire, he seizes upon it to try to turn you in on yourself. He's hungry, verse 3, next word, ooh, he's hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Jesus answered him, it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone. If you go back and look at Deuteronomy chapter 6, the verse goes on to say, man shall not live alone but by every word that proceeds from the Lord's mouth. The word. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, authority and glory, for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written. He quotes the word. You shall not worship the Lord your God and him only serve shall you serve. Verse nine. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written. See what Satan's doing? He starts quoting scripture. By the way, if you didn't know, Satan knows the scripture better than all of us. He knows it really good. He twists it, though. So he quotes it back. He's like, all right, Jesus is playing this Bible game. I'll use it against him. See if that'll sway him. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up. Lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him, note the words, until an opportune time. He was at warfare after that, folks. So, we see here three temptations. First temptation, Satan tried to seize upon Jesus' desire for food in verses 1 to 4. Second temptation, he tried to seize upon his desire for authority and glory. Third temptation, he tried to appeal upon his desire to test the love of God. That verses 9 to 13. And you'll note that every single time Jesus responds with the word of God. 
Every single time. He quotes, interestingly, all of those three quotes are from Deuteronomy 6, two of them, and then one of them from Deuteronomy 8. That's an interesting time in which to be quoting things because Deuteronomy 5 is the giving of the law. Deuteronomy 6 at the beginning is that great Shema. Love the Lord your God. And then comes these verses that he's quoting right before they go and enter into the promised land. And so he's quoting the word. He's saturated in the word. This is what it means to love God, to obey his word. We are saturated in this word. And so to make disciples, we must be saturated in the word of God. Why? Because when we saturate ourselves in the word of God, we're going to be reminded of the love of God. If you don't hear the word of God, you're not going to be reminded. You're not going to have life excited within you if you're not saturating yourself in the word of God. If you show up here once a week and you hear us preach, folks, this is important. One of the most important meals you'll get all week, but it's not the only meal you need to get all week. Thanksgiving dinner is great, but only lasts a day. Maybe it kind of peels off into one or two, but you need to go back and eat again. You've got to saturate yourself in the love of God. And as you do, the word of God will excite life in you. You'll be able to resist temptation. You'll be able to speak the word into the life of others so that life would come in them. You've got to saturate yourself in the word of God, but you also have to pray. You respond to that word by praying to God. That's exactly what Jesus does in his ministry when he's making disciples. Look at Luke 5, verse 16. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. This is all through the scriptures. Look at chapter 6, verse 12. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night, he continued in prayer to God. Look at chapter 9, verse 18. 9, verse 18. It says, verse 18, Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. I could keep going. Look at verse 28. Now about eight days, uh, these say after after these sayings, he took with him Peter and James and John and went up on the mountain to pray. It keeps going, guys. Chapter eleven, verse one. Chapter twenty-two, verse forty-one. Chapter twenty-three, verse thirty-four and thirty-six. Jesus, these are not times he's teaching about prayer. Those are just verses I read to you where he's just noted to be praying. Because that's what love does. It goes back. It returns back to the Father. We commune with the Father. We talk to the Father. We exalt the Father. We enjoy the Father. We, 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 we appeal to others on behalf of the Father. We pray. We saturate ourselves in the Word and in prayer. And that brings life within us. We're saturated in that life. And then we then move to initiate relationships. We're saturated in the love of God as revealed in the Word of God, in prayer with God. And then as we do that, life comes within us. And therefore, we then move to initiate loving relationships. Saturate ourselves in the Word of God, prayer with God. That moves us. We respond to that love by seeking to bring about the same life in others. We initiate loving relationships. Luke chapter 5, verse 10. That's what Jesus does. He came to make disciples. That's what we see him doing. So we see in Luke chapter 5, this is the time when he's out. He's preaching on the boat. All right, and then he push off from the boat. They go out into Lake Gennesaret. And they, he tells them to throw the net off to the side. And they get all that fish. You all know that event most of you do. In verse 10, we come to this. And it, and it says, And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, 
you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Did you see what he did? He initiated a relationship with them. Look down at chapter 5, verse 27. You see he initiates a relationship with Levi. Verse 27, verse 28. Take a look at chapter 6, verse 12. In these days, he went out again to the mountain to pray and all night he continued in prayer to God. So he's going to God in prayer before he initiates these relationships, seeking God's wisdom and counsel. And I want you to note the words as we read through them in verse 13. And when day came, he, Jesus, called his disciples and chose from the twelve whom he named apostles. See that? Verse 13. He called. He chose. He named. He initiated specific relationships with specific people. He called them out. He initiated those relationships. And that's what we must do. I think this is one of the places that we get hung up on. We just sort of, I've had new, and I love this, keep asking me, Nathan, if you know anybody looking for a discipling relationship, let me know. Great, I will, but you do it. Right? Initiate it. Get out there. Do something. But we, we find, I love this quote from Robert Coleman, Coleman when we evaluate the disciple-making ministry of Jesus. He says his concern, Jesus' concern, was not with programs to reach the multitudes, but with men whom the multitudes would follow. That's his whole plan. Coleman has this great apocryphal story where he talks about he, Jesus ascends, go to the heaven. He's talking to the angel Gabriel. And, Gabe, and Gabriel's like, this is great that you're here, back in heaven, as it were. And Jesus is like, yeah. And he's like, well, what did you do? Well, well I entrusted the kingdom to these 12 men. And 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 then and, and, uh, Jesus, or the Spirit says, well, what if it doesn't work with those 12 men? And Jesus says, that's my whole plan. That's it. They're it. Those 12 guys. Did Jesus speak to the crowds? Of course he did. But you know what? We often find Jesus getting rid of crowds. Think John 6, 66. Easiest verse in all the Bible to remember. Right? 666. John 666. Crowds come in. He gets rid of them. You gotta eat of me. This dude's weird. I'm out. Right. You gonna leave me too? No. Right. He's interested not in crowds per se, although he does teach to them. He's really interested in those 12 men. And he initiated a relationship with those men in order to invest in them that on their backs the whole world would be turned upside down. He initiated and chose and called out specific relationships to love these 12 men that life would change. And I want you to notice the people he chose. These men are impulsive. They're temperamental. They're easily offended. They had all the prejudices of their environment. These were men, according to Acts 4.13, that were unlearned and ignorant. These are likely from the poor class of their society. These men are often mistaken in their judgment. They're slow to comprehend spiritual things. Their abilities were limited. These are simple men. Not the kinds of men that you would think that we should choose. These were men that the world did not take notice of. But they were men that God took notice of. Jesus was not trying to impress the world. He wasn't. He was not interested in trying to impress the world while choosing just the right kinds of guys so that people would be, ooh, look, he got the king and he got this guy and he got that guy. And so, therefore, well, I guess the whole world's kind of doing that, so I'll go with that. Jesus could care less about what media say. He could care less. 
He designated relationships with people to call them out. What Jesus did was he initiated specific relationships with men that were fat. What in the world is that? Like they had a lot of weight? No. Fat. They were faithful, they were available, and they were teachable. They were faithful, and they were available and teachable. That's who the, that's who he initiated relationships with, with fat guys. I was meeting with Hector when our, when I was discipling Hector, and Hector's like, Nathan, I want to make disciples. Who do I go get? I said, go get fat people. Like, what? Go get people that are faithful, available, and teachable. These disciples were faithful in that they wanted to know God. They were interested in that. They wanted to obey God. That's who we spent time with. They were available. Namely, they took their time out of their schedules. Namely, they just threw their nets down and walked off. But nevertheless, same principle for us. They made time in their schedules to follow Him. They made themselves available. And then thirdly, they were teachable. Most of the time. Sometimes they were a little hard-headed. But they were teachable. They asked questions. They, uh, they, they listened a lot. They tried to understand. Jesus, I don't understand that parable. Can you explain it to me? They were teachable. They weren't arrogant men. And God quite literally took those ordinary, simple men and turned the whole world upside down with them. Twelve men. Most people would look at the discipling ministry of Jesus and they would conclude, not impressive. And yet he changed the whole world by it because he invested, he initiated relationships with those twelve. So initiate guys and gals, brothers and sisters at Restoration Church, initiate relationships with people for the purposes of loving them by helping them follow Jesus. Here's what you got to do. This is a big one for us. You got to embrace the awkward. You just got to embrace it. Now, I would not advise you to go walking down Farragut Square while someone is out, you know, doing their job or whatever, and say, drop your briefcase and follow me. You know, that's probably not going to go well for you. Maybe. Give it a shot. Who knows? You never know. Like, oh, this guy, maybe he's got something. I, you know, whatever. But nevertheless, you've got to find opportunities and call them, initiate those relationships, and you've got to know when you go to initiate those relationships, it's going to be awkward. you just got to embrace it, because who cares if they think you're silly? Who cares? Who really cares? Embrace the awkward. I understand for my introverted brothers and sisters in the faith, this is especially hard for you. I get that. But listen, I want you to know your joy is on the other side of that awkwardness. you got to go there for the good of them, for the good of God's glory, and for the good of your own enjoyment. You've got to embrace the awkward. Ask the question. Andrew Sung, former member of our church, up in England now, trying to help plant a church. Uh, we talked about these four meetings through Mark. So we have just we have a few tools at Restoration Church. He had been having a relationship with a guy at his job. He's walking out to uh, his car, and he's talking to this guy about it's not a Christian. He's talking to this guy about uh, things, and Andrew just says to him, "Hey, would you like to read the Bible with me?" Vulnerable moment, right? Guy says, "Sure." Off they went. Took him right through. God didn't come to know Christ to this point that we know of, but he embraced the awkward. He was willing to make himself vulnerable. C.S. Lewis has this great quote that I don't have written down, but it's amazing. But he says, love demands that you be made vulnerable. So if you're uninterested in making yourself vulnerable, you won't ever really be able to love. He said, and C.S. Lewis says in the quote, he says, you can't even love a dog because a dog's going to break your heart. 
So listen, you got, if you're going to love as Christ has loved, if you're going to make disciples, make your life crowd, spread the world, and obey Jesus with the glories of Christ, you're going to have to embrace the awkward, ask the question. There's another example in our church. Megan was talking with Esther uh, at a at a gathering in uh, an apartment, and they're talking about various things in the life of the church. Megan is talking to her about this culture of discipleship that we try to do here. And at some point, Esther, who's now a member of our church, says to her, well, I'd like to know more about that. Can we meet together to talk about it? So there's a sense in which Esther, Megan initiated and Esther uh, initiated, and they go, they say, sure, they meet up again. They're talking about it. And at some point, I don't know who asked the question, but they, one of them asked, can we meet and continue talking about this? And off they go. And now they meet and help each other follow Jesus. That's it. You've got to embrace that awkward, lean into it. Listen, think about this, guys. <laughs> when I asked my wife to marry me, really awkward. All right? Very, amen, AJ? Amen? Right? Taylor, are you with me? Hard to ask wife to marry you. Super awkward. Super awkward. Very hard. Sweating, bullets, the whole thing. My wife doesn't respond within like 30 seconds. It made me even more awkward. She eventually said yes. Praise the Lord for that. But listen, I had to embrace the awkward if I was going to enter in a loving relationship with my wife. If I don't ask her that, she's not sitting over there. I don't have this on. But I'm glad I embraced the awkward and asked her to marry me. You've got to embrace the awkward. If you're going to see people grow up in the love of Christ, you can't make disciples without initiating conversations with people. And calling them into that loving relationship. Now, I want to ask the question, who is it we initiate these relationships with? Who? Well, I think you should start out. If you're married, you should start out with your spouse. That's where you start. You are commanded by Scripture to begin discipling that relationship. You've got to do that one well. Husbands, that starts with you. So, guys, I just want a little quick aside here. I've heard at least a handful of times of wives saying to me, I want him to talk about Jesus and he just doesn't do it very much. That makes me mad, I'll be honest with you. I mean, it just makes me mad. They want to talk. The door's open. This is not even awkward, right? You just got to talk about Jesus. Walk in. Lean in. Talk about Jesus. So husbands, love your wife. As Christ loved the church. Talk about the Lord. And then some of you wives are saying, well, well, I can't disciple my husband. You know, I've got the whole subservient thing. Yes, you can help disciple your husband. Initiate times of prayer with him. Talk to him about the things that you're learning and word. Talk to him about the kinds of conversations you've had with other people. and Maybe encourage him with those kinds of things. Go home on the way home. And if he won't talk to you about the sermon, well, lead him. Talk about it. Show him how... You were impacted by the service, by a song or a prayer, something in the text that you saw in Jesus. You can serve Him and show and so model the hands and feet of Christ. There's tons of ways that wives can disciple their husbands in that way. But the next sort of who that we need to think about in terms of initiating relationships with are the lost, namely people that don't know Christ. you got to have them as a priority. I love that line in the movie, The End of the Spirit. Jim Elliott, great missionary to the Aka Indians. And his son walks up to him before he goes and gets in the plane before he's about to go and try to share these good news with these Aka Indians. And, uh, and they, he was not carrying a gun. Many people carried a gun. And the son said to his, to Jim Elliot, the missionary, Daddy, uh, why don't you carry a gun or something like that? And this, he says back to his son, he says, buddy, he says, they're not ready to die. I'm ready to die. 
we've got to prioritize the lost. Those of us that have Christ, we're ready to die. But those that do not know Christ, they're not ready to die. We've got to prioritize them. We've got to love them enough to embrace the awkward, to ask them to follow Jesus. And whatever that means, we can talk about that in just a minute. But we should prioritize those that do not know Christ. I'm praying. I'm begging God. 2016 was a hard year for us in the way of seeing the fruit and evangelism. And I, I hope that 2017 is going to be a great year. I'm praying for that. I'm begging God that we would see all kinds of fruit of you guys sharing the good news of the gospel and people coming to life and these pews or these seats get filled up. We're running out of room because so many people, so many of you are sharing the good news of the gospel and life is happening, change is happening, and me and Joey don't know what to do because all this stuff is happening. You guys got to do it. We got to train up. You just go. Just get really messy. Share the good news with the lost. Embrace the awkward, initiated relationship with them. Third group of people that you need to initiate relationships with is your church members. If you're a member of this church, you covenanted with these people sitting next to you, if you're a member of the church, that you're going to help them follow Jesus. You said you'd do that. And the reason why you said you'd do that is because Jesus told us to do that. Right? So you've got to prioritize that. I don't know what the percentages are, but I can tell you in the last 18 months, our church has almost flipped half of us. Right? So there's a lot of you, many of you, if you if you become a member of this church the last 18 months, uh, we, I just want you to know, we're trying to encourage a culture of discipleship. We've got church, we're trying to disciple you here in our corporate gatherings, and then secondly, we've got those community groups, we're trying to help you there. But third, we really want you to try to find somebody to meet with and love and encourage each other outside of those groups, because sometimes those groups are kind of hard, and those individual relationships are really helpful. So we identify other members in the church. And fourthly, we identify visitors in the church. Every single week here, we've got people here. They're like, "Uh uh-oh. So if you're a visitor here, would you please stand? I'm just kidding. Don't do it. Don't Don't do that. Not going to do that to you. So they know, go get them. I would like to do that if I was honest, but I'm not going to do it. So visitors come into this church every single week. And they're looking for people that will help them follow Jesus. My guess is they're coming to a church because they want to learn about Jesus. I'm guessing that's why. Why else would you come? Not for the great preaching, the kicking band, right? So what we're trying to do is help people follow Jesus. So if they're coming here and they're a visitor, help them follow Jesus. Ask them to meet. Invite them to go out to lunch with you afterwards. I can remember a story, a guy by the name of Jonathan Six, that was our little circle at seminary. We had a great church, and we all kind of ran together. And this one guy didn't run with, he didn't go to the same church. The rest, the rest of us went to the same church. And one week we asked him, Jonathan, why don't you go to the church we go to? And you know what he said, I've never forgotten this. He said, Nathan, the reason why I don't go to that church, your church, is because it's not this church, it's the one we are at the seminary. He said, um, because I went there once and twice and nobody actually welcomed me. Nobody said hello. You guys do this really well. Just, I'm not trying to guilt you here. You guys do this really well. But there's all kinds of visitors that come in that we can help identify and invite them up. Another group that you can identify is the children of our church. Right now. Right now, those little non-believers, most of them, maybe all of them, are getting discipled. Right now. Misael's in there. There's other people in there sharing the good news of the gospel. I'll never forget a sermon from John MacArthur when he said, MacArthur said something like, we have 237 lost people come in every single week to our church. And I was listening to the sermon. I'm like, how does he know that? Man, go get those guys. And then he said, they're the children of our church. And I went, oh, yeah. I never thought of it that way. You know, children are being discipled right now. My most, if not all of them, don't know Christ. 
prioritize them. Half of our church, I, I asked the number, 133 members, 68 have, have signed up to disciple them. I know Catherine sits outside of my office. She's like, ah, January, nobody wants to do children's ministry in January. Uh, so listen, we got to find ways. The more, wouldn't it be great if we had 133 out of 133 members trying to help? And I understand not everybody can do it. I understand not everybody can do it. Not, some people, it's not best for you to go sign up to do children's ministry. That's fine. But do pray for them. Prioritize them. Try to help them follow Jesus. A great example in this is my brother Hagthorne. You know, he, he, he makes a point to prepare and to teach my kids and your kids. When my kids come home and Mr. Hague taught, they remember what Mr. Hague taught them. And you know what? There's part of that is, is because Hague takes the time outside of that classroom to get to know my kids, to love my kids, to ask questions with my kids, to play with my kids. Last night he was throwing my kids around. Uh, he was causing havoc, which was great. Uh, but this is what Hague does. See, Making disciples is important enough to Hague that he prepares to teach it. Then he gets his name on that schedule. Then he goes in there and then he teaches. Because he wants to make disciples that love Jesus. And he wants to disciple children. I need to move on. But listen, these are just some of the people that we can identify to choose to initiate these relationships with. with. Don't get caught up in maturity levels. I think too many of us get immobilized by that. You know, you got the whole, forget about the whole Paul, Timothy, Barnabas thing. Just throw that out the window. Right? If it's helpful to you, hang on to it. But I think too many of us are like, well, you know, I'm sort of a Barnabas, and so I need to find a Timothy. Just forget that. Just forget it. Help people follow Jesus. Just find someone to follow Jesus. Like, I know, listen, if you look around, guys, 75 to 80% of our church is 18 to 35 years old. All right? I love to say, like, the people that they, the, the market says don't go to church, well, they all come to our church. So 18 to 35, that's most of our church. Most of them have not been following Jesus for very long. Most of them have not been Christians for very long. Most of them never joined a church before. And so the reality is most of you are sort of at the same plane. So what are we going to do? Just not make disciples with each other because you're on the same equal status? Forget about that. Just find someone and meet up with them and try to help them follow Jesus. Find somebody that's not like you. So... I know it's sort of a fascination in American churches to try to get all the people from the same stage of life in order to make the church grow. I think it's a terrible idea. It's a terrible idea. Try to find college kids. Find someone that's married. Someone that's married, find a college kid. Find a single, married. What a different, you know, ethnic backgrounds and life experiences. I think it's wise to probably stay inside of the same gender. But listen, find someone different from you and meet up with them. Note the geography. All right, see where they are. Maybe somebody lives close to you, works close to you. Note their schedules so you can see it or match those up. You know, don't, you know, if it doesn't work, it's probably not going to be real easy. We got people that live in like South Arlington and we got people that live like up in Gaithersburg. Like those two, it's going to be hard for those two people to get together. But I love, there's a great example of the guys at NIH. Ray Chin, God bless his brother. I think it was him that initiated a conversation with the other brothers that work in the National Institute of Health. So Berkeley Grider is there. Taylor Updegrove is there. Chris Heary is kind of there. And Ray's there. And they've been walking. So they have, a lunch, they have to eat lunch. So they get together at their lunch hour. They've worked through the book of Galatians. They've worked through the book of James. And I think they're going through the book of Hebrews right now. What a great opportunity. They're members of the same church. They work at the same place. They get together once a month. They just talk about Jesus. And I get questions every once in a while like I did this past week. What about this verse in Hebrews? Ah, I think it's this. Just go. You know, oh, got it. On they go. Find geography and schedules and help each other find, follow Jesus. And last thing on this initiate piece, 
This could happen in one-on-ones. This could happen in triads. It doesn't have to be just one-on-one. I read a great article in Christianity Today. Boy, i got to go. Christianity Today that says, that it's interesting, African-American churches actually have a higher culture of discipleship. You want to know why? Because African-American churches more often are meeting in groups, like three and four and five people. Whereas the more white-oriented churches, they're only doing one-on-one. So listen, I don't know what whatever it means to you. Get one-on-one, three, four, five, whatever it is. Help people follow Jesus. We've got to saturate ourselves in the Word of God. We've got to uh, then initiate relationships with people that are faithful, available, teachable in these various things. And then thirdly, after we get into those things, what do we do? Well, we imitate the love of Christ. We imitate the love of Christ. Take a look at Luke chapter 10, verse 21. Luke 10, 21. In that same hour, they just the 72 have come back from preaching the gospel. He rejoiced, this is a prayer, in the Spirit. Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or the who the Father is except the Son. Listen to what he says next. And anyone to whom the Son, there's the initiative, chooses to reveal him. Look at the very next verse. Then, turning to the disciples, those 12 men, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that you see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So you see what Jesus is saying there? Jesus says that he's initiated relationship with these people and then he's choosing to reveal the kingdom to them. That's what we do in those relationships. We're revealing the kingdom. We're revealing the king. We're revealing the kingdom. That's what Jesus did to those disciples. He revealed the kingdom. He taught them the kingdom. He taught them doctrine and he taught them life. All right. It's important that you understand that. Some of the. Yeah. Don't just read systematic theology textbooks. You gotta do something with it. Be doers of the word, James says. So, he revealed the kingdom to the disciples. That's how he made disciples. Is he loved them to the point of giving them life by helping them understand the kingdom and by modeling the kingdom out in front of them. That's gonna, that includes doctrine and life, teaching and living. Both. He's doing that. We can think about the ways he did that. Remember, he taught in parables. Remember, think about the four soils. Listen, there's going to be all kinds of people out there. And then he tells those parables to the crowds. And then he goes back to those disciples. And the disciples are like, I don't get the soils thing, Jesus. And he's like, well, let me tell you. Here's what it is. And he explained it to them to help them understand with their minds. He told them the gospel. He did not speak that broadly, you'll note. I'm going to, listen, I'm going to get turned over. I'm going to die. And on the third day, I'm going to raise again. He's telling them the gospel. But they also saw in the discipleship, he's teaching them things, but they also saw the kinds of things that made him happy. So, for instance, we see uh, in Luke 15, verse 7 and 10, when sinners repent, it brings joy. So the, they would have seen that in him. They saw his life. They saw the kinds of things that made him happy, that gave him joy. And that's part of the discipleship. But they also saw the things that made him unhappy or made him sad by living their life out in front of them. So when, for instance, when the he laments over the city of Jerusalem in Luke chapter 13, he see, they, the disciples see what makes him unhappy. The saw, disciples saw 
when he was led away to be crucified. Well, at least they ran away, but they eventually saw it. Jesus taught them, here's some doctrine, he taught them to love your enemies. And then they watched him do it on the cross. Doctrine and life, and it matched. He loved his enemies to the point of giving life. They saw all of that. He was helping them understand the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God was the most important thing to Jesus. He taught the kingdom and he lived the kingdom and he showed them how to orient others into that kingdom. And that's what love does. Shows the most important things and brings life up in there. And the way, so the way that we imitate the love of God is by helping them understand doctrine and life. There's a, another analogy I find helpful. If this is not helpful to you, throw it away. It's called MAWL, M-A-W-L. You model the love of God. You assist others in that love of God. You then watch them sort of work out that love of God, and then you leave them to do it. Model, assist, watch, and then leave. That's what we must do, Restoration Church. We must make disciples and train people up in the love of God by imitating the love of God out in front of them. And so you can do this in so many different ways. You can read books together. You can pray together. Uh, you can get together just to catch up on each other and pray for each other. You can go out and evangelize together. We used to go out and do this a lot. We would go out and do surveys. We just walk the streets and ask people four questions. What books have you read? What movies are, have you been watching? Who's Jesus? What do you think of the church? What happens to people when they die? I've got stacks of surveys that we used to do this with to try to understand our community and bring life to people by through evangelism. You can serve the poor together. You can serve families together. Last night, me and my two boys and Misael and Alex, God bless Alex, went to uh, the AU wrestling match last night. All right. We were doing something. I, I invited them along and on they came and we watched some good wrestling. Um, yeah, we had a good time. And so he's watching me do things. We're talking about Jesus. We're talking about pins and what riding time is and all these other things. But all of this is happening. We're doing it together. It's part of discipling. Serve the church together. When we have things that are going on here, sign up to do things alongside of each other. So many things you can do. I signed up, for instance, with American friends. All right. And he had a wife and kids. I had a wife and kids. They stuck us together. Kyle Mays helped initiate that relationship. I initiated it with him and I invite him into my home and we ate some of his food and he, he ate some of our food and uh, we had all these kinds of relationships and we talked about all kinds of things. And I always am talking to him about Jesus and the gospel. And he's asking me questions, you know, like, what's Santa Claus? Uh, well, that's a little strange, you know, so let's talk about that. Yes, he's asking me questions like that. And then I share, I'm always sharing the gospel with Osama. He's such a sweet man. His family is such a sweet family who we love. We've grown to love and other people in this church have loved too. He's been to this church. He'd never been to a church before. He's been to this church twice. Funny enough, he's never heard me preach, but he's heard me preach in Starbucks, but not here. So he's come here. But anyway, we initiated this relationship. We invited him out to watch my boys' t-ball games, and they they came out. And then, like, they're we're talking to him about baseball, but I'm talking to him about Jesus. And another guy that I discipled named Joel Gravely came with me one time to meet with him, and he asked Osama what the gospel was. I'm sitting over there going, oh, boy, let's see if he's remembered what I've told him a gazillion times. And Osama, beautifully, simply, maybe better than most Christians I met, just rattled off the gospel as clean as could be. And I said to myself, all right, God, I've done my part. I've helped him understand and hopefully I've modeled it out in front of him. 
And then we're going to get to multiplication in a minute. I brought I was preaching on the love of God. God is love. And so I thought that the Muslims had that verse in their Quran. So I initiated a meeting with Osama and I brought him together and I took Hector with me, who was also meeting with Hector and I went and we sat there and we talked about what the Quran has to say about the love of God. And then we talked about how the Christianity says it. And it was just this beautiful time together. We've got to initiate and then we imitate the love of God by helping them understand it. That's what I did with Osama in that moment. I can think about Catherine, how she initiated a relationship with Eliana to go through the book of Mark together. And now, now Eliana comes over to Catherine and Hector's apartment and she sees things in there every week. And Catherine's sharing with Eliana the time she's not doing well. I'm struggling. Pray for me, Eliana. And back and forth. That's discipleship. Helping imitate the love of God. And so some of you might say, well, I'm too busy to be making disciples. Well, listen, that's a problematic statement if you're a Christian. But friend, even if you are too busy, find ways. You can blend your life. If you exercise, bring them along. Errands, bring them along. Meals, bring them along. You have to be willing to be inconvenienced if you're a Christian. If you are unwilling to be inconvenienced, I just don't know if Christ has gripped your heart. I'm pretty sure the cross was a big inconvenience. Those 12 disciples, well, they got inconvenienced. You've got to be willing to be inconvenienced. Die to yourself. Take up your torture device and follow me every day. There's a cost to discipleship. Christianity is not a life of ease. It's death to self, life to others, renouncing to the world, receiving the kingdom of heaven. What if you don't know enough? Listen, if you know the gospel and you have the spirit of God within you, you have enough. Are you going to make mistakes? You better believe you're going to make mistakes. It's all right. Tell them you made a mistake. Say, I don't know a lot. I'll go find that out for you. All right. Finally, I'll be brief on this one. Replicate. We've saturated ourselves in the word of God. We've uh, initiated loving relationships. We've imitated the love of God out in front of people in doctrine and life. And therefore, as we're going along, we replicate. We multiply. Love of God to others. Remember Coleman's statement. His concern was not with programs to reach the multitudes, but with men whom the multitudes would follow. Luke chapter 24, verse 44. Luke 24, verse 44. Here's what Jesus said. This is him. We're watching him make disciples. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. There he is teaching doctrine and said to them, thus, it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. He's teaching them the gospel and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed. So he tells them how to receive the gospel. And then we find them to multiply that gospel through the world, proclaimed in his name to all nations. Beginning from Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending you the promise of my father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Christ invested in those 12 disciples and those disciples shared with other disciples and they spread out all over the earth to the point to where it got to Washington, D.C. And you're here multiplication, replication. We've got to love people enough to tell them about the gospel and help them train themselves up in the gospel. And as we are discipling them, I say this a lot when I meet up with guys. All right, so friend, when you're meeting with somebody else, you need to be aware of this. In other words, I want to implant in their hearts and minds. You need to be thinking about other people. Don't just take this for yourself. We've got to multiply, replicate. This church, Restoration Church, exists 
because of two churches decide to multiply themselves. Shutterbrook Church back in Swanee, Georgia, and North Wake Church in, in North Carolina. This church is a multiplication of those churches. And later, Lord willing, we're going to plant another church out of this one. And it's going to be a Hispanic baby, and it's going to be awesome. Amen, Alejandro? We're going to multiply because that's what discipleship does. Wherever life comes, wherever love comes, wherever love comes, life comes. And it multiplies off into the eternity. I can think about stories where Paige met with Megan and now Megan is meeting with Esther. I can think about the times that I fumbled over my ways with AJ years ago and helped him disciple. Then he went off to Russia and then to Rasulkaima to help plant churches there. I think about how Joey led Hector to faith in Christ. And Hector now is leading his home and his community group and was baptized at this church. And on and on it goes. Think about all the people that this church, all the newlyweds in this church that we have been able to shepherd and love and disciple. And then they had kids and now they're doing it. It just multiplies and on it goes. And think about the story, my favorite story for me personally. There was a woman who I never met and you never met and you're being influenced by right now. Her name is Ann Gann. She told Catherine Knight that she was a sinner. And my Catherine Knight never heard that before. Ann Gann shares the gospel with, with Catherine Knight. Catherine Knight gives her life to Jesus. Then Mrs. Hoff, never met her, she comes along. She helps disciple Catherine Knight. All right. So then Catherine Knight tells Enoch Knight about Jesus. Enoch Knight gives his life to Jesus. Enoch Knight and Catherine Knight tell Enoch Knight Jr. about Jesus. He believes. Enoch Knight then begins to date a woman named Donna Gherkin. Donna Gherkin hears the gospel from the grandmother, or from, sorry, from Catherine Knight. All right. She believes. Donna Gherkin believes. Uh, Enoch and Donna get married, and they have a son named Donna, and they have a son named Nathan. Now Nathan's here. And on it goes. Multiply, 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 multiply. Friend, you have influence. What will you do with it? What will you do with it? Will you take the greatest gift that has ever been given to the world and keep it for yourself? Or will you live on mission for the glories of Christ and for the good of your soul? Do not buy into this lie of indulgence and be willing to give yourself to others, even and especially if it makes you uncomfortable. Because that's what the gospel is. Think about these people. Be willing to be inconvenienced. And if they laugh at you, and if they mock at you, rejoice. That's what Jesus said. For your reward is great in heaven. Life giving love to others by helping people follow Jesus. That's what Restoration Church does. That's what we do. That's what you must do. That's what we see pattern in Jesus' ministry. So I'm going to pray, and I'm going to let you guys watch a video. Oh my, Restoration Church, you want to watch a video? Yeah. So, so, you're going to watch a video, and, and I love this video, uh, because, because you're going to see all the initiative in there, and you're going to see, like, he doesn't know what he's doing, and the Lord just uses it all. I hope it'll encourage you to kind of pull all of this together. Um, so let's pray. And then we're going to sing. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus. Thank you that somebody told us the gospel. And then our lives were changed by that love. And so may we enjoy God. May we enjoy you. May we make you known until Jesus comes back. And we will see the fruit of our discipleship. And we will meet Anne Gann. And we will meet Mrs. Hoff. 
And we will meet all those people that share the good news with us. And may we, God, we pray for the people yet unnamed in 2017 that will come to faith in Christ. That church plan in Columbia Heights amongst the Hispanics. God, we are trusting you, not ourselves, to bring about fruit in our evangelism and our discipleship. May we live and be inconvenienced for your glory. Amen.